And turn with me to Psalm 95. This is our sermon text this morning. Taking a little break from Matthew. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11. And these are the words of God. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. The grass withers, the flower fades. You may please be seated. Uh, Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, in this moment as we sit before this meal which you have prepared for us, a meal of your word, we confess to you that we don't have the ability to digest it apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. So please, be gracious to us through Christ. Cause your Spirit to work in our hearts that we might understand these words, that we might hear as it were, your voice, O Lord, calling out to us, and that our hearts would be softened so that we might be obedient rather than rebellious children. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Today we gather to give special reflection um, to God's goodness and to thank him for all that he has done in our lives. And this is something that we do as a daily discipline. We thank the Lord for his blessings in our lives. Um, But we remember that thanksgiving is a learned trait, isn't it? Thanksgiving is a learned trait. By nature, we are ungrateful people. Uh, We like to think that the things we have in our lives These are a reflection of our successes. They are, in a sense, tributes to our wisdom, our intelligence, our hard work. In reality, all we have comes from God's hands. I think as a father uh, and as parents, we we have to teach our children to be thankful. Um, As I had a particular method with my children, if if they asked me for something and I say I got something down from a high shelf and, and I was offering it to them and they came to get it, they would pull and find that it wouldn't be released. And they were required to say thank you and finally they received uh, what they had asked for. We have to teach our children 
to be thankful, and God as well teaches us to be thankful. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. If you are a thankful person, if you give thanks to the Lord, and you acknowledge Him in all your ways, this is an evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, enabling you to thank Him. We think of ourselves as self-sufficient. I don't need a God, even if He exists. Yet those who are redeemed by Christ are redeemed, think of this, unto a life of perpetual thanksgiving. This is one of the first things that you acknowledge, that you recognize when you come to Christ in sincere faith is, is you begin to give thanks. Your heart is overwhelmed at what God has done for you and forgiving you of sin. And so you become a thankful person. Those who are redeemed by Christ are redeemed unto a life of perpetual thanksgiving. In fact, one of the things that we're going to discuss this morning is that God demands thanksgiving. He demands it. Psalm 95 teaches us that the people of God gladly obey Him by returning thanks for all His works. But the sons of disobedience deny God His due and incur His wrath. The people of God gladly obey Him by returning thanks for all His works, but the sons of disobedience deny God His due and incur His wrath. Let's notice together, first of all, that obedient men give thanks. Obedient men give thanks. Notice with me Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. In verse 2, let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. This is a call to worship that we'll often use in our own worship here at New Covenant. We'll, we'll begin our worship with this invitation. Let us come. And it's, it's such a, it offers us such peace to hear God call us into His presence. And we, we want to reflect on that. But we also ought to identify, recognize, that these calls to worship truthfully are commands. When you understand the Hebrew text here, what it's teaching you is that you must come. Let's go back and look at it now, understanding that these are commands of God. And notice the command to give thanks. O come, we must sing to Yahweh. We must make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We must come into His presence with thanksgiving. We must make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And verse 6, O come, we must worship and bow down. We must kneel before the Lord, our Maker. This is a very important aspect of this psalm. To recognize that God is commanding His people to come into His presence. Now notice that we are coming into His presence in a special relationship with Him. Look at what it says in verse 7. For He is our God. He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And therefore, He commands us. But very simply, God's people, God's people, the sheep of His pasture, the people of His pasture, are commanded to gather for worship. And so think of this now. Worship itself 
is an obedient response to the command of God. I think this is so important for us today. I think there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who may believe that gathering with the body of Christ for corporate worship is an add-on to the Christian life. This is something extra. These are the Christians who go above and beyond what God requires of us to do. But the psalm, Psalm 95, reminds us that there is no such thing as going above and beyond what God calls us to do. The whole Christian life is a response to God's gracious activity in our lives, and we obey Him. This is our act of worship. We come into His presence with thanksgiving. It is a response to His grace. Notice what the psalmist says. Who is He? The rock of our salvation. This is the one who has delivered us from slavery. He is our maker. And not only that, we are, we are the people of His pasture. I can give you testimony after testimony after testimony of the way that God has protected me and provided for me so graciously. How can I do anything but come into His presence? Gathering with God's people then is an act of obedience, not simply a response to an invitation. Notice, to sing to Him is an act of obedience. I train my voice to sing His praise, but I'm not just training my voice, am I? What, what is He saying? When I come to Him with songs, with shouts of joy, He's teaching me to train my heart. Discipline your heart to obey the Lord. Don't just come with the perfunctory activity. Well, I came, we sang, we prayed, we did it. That's not obedience. You think about how we, you teach your children again. and what is, what is godly obedience? Well, it means that obedience is immediate, it's complete, and it is joyful. You can imagine that moment if I'm holding whatever it is that my child asked me for, and he comes up and he takes it, and I say, and, and I don't say anything. They, they know what's expected. And they grab the book, or they grab the cookie, or whatever it may be, and, and they know they're expected to say thank you, and they say, thanks! That's not fulfilling the command. We discipline our hearts as we come into the presence of, of the Lord. Therefore, we sing. We unlock our jaws, and we sing His praise. To sing is to obey Him. When we gather into His presence, it elicits our thanksgiving. Notice that God's people are commanded to sing and to give thanks. Now, the word here, to, to give thanks, notice what it says there in verse 2. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. This is a, a very crucial aspect of this psalm. Come into His presence with thanksgiving. The Hebrew word there for thanksgiving could also be translated sacrifice of thanks or offering of thanks. And you start to get this picture. The psalmist in Psalm 95 is in his words giving you a picture of this divine drama that would take place when God's people would come into the presence of God. Why is there a divine drama? 
Because you don't come into God's presence lightly. There's an appropriate way to come into the presence of God. To obey this command is to enter God's presence. That's not something that we do lightly. Do you remember what happened to Adam when he ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? God met him. He was in God's presence. But God was angry with Adam. Where are you? There's a break in the relationship. And God demonstrated His anger toward Adam in a specific way. He threw him out of the garden. And He built a gate, two angels and a flaming sword that did not permit Adam to come back into Eden. Now think, you, God's people, God commands to come into His presence. You see, apart from God's command, you, you don't come. You understand that by nature, I live at the, at, Eden, at the base of Eden's mountain. I can look up and see where God dwells, but I can't come up there. Psalm 24, as we've reflected on, um, um, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can go up there? Well, you can. God commands you to come. Now do you see why there's also thanksgiving? I can't come. He commands you to come. Come into the presence of the Lord, but bring with you the offering of thanksgiving. If you go to Leviticus chapter 7, what you'll find there is that the offering of thanksgiving was preceded by something else. The offering of thanksgiving was preceded by blood. You offer your sin offering, you offer your burnt offering, and then and only then do you offer the thanksgiving offering and the offering of peace. Then and only then. You see what's happening then. This is the drama. How do the people of God enter into, the, into God's presence? You bring blood and then you respond by worshiping Him with thanksgiving. To come with thanksgiving means to come with a sacrifice of thanks preceded by blood. Let's apply just a couple of things here. One, corporate worship is not and add on to the Christian life. It is an obligation. Now, for us, th this is a duty of delight. We're not coming to an Egyptian pharaoh who's demanding that we bake bricks and gather our own straw. You are coming into the presence of the one who made you and who protects you and provides you for you every day. This is the one whose love has been poured out upon you effusively every single day who's calling you into His presence. Now certainly there are times where we are providentially hindered from attending the Lord's worship. There's illness and car trouble. But to willfully shun 
gathering with God's people is a sin. You are neglecting His command. For us, this is a joyful obligation. We get to worship the living God. The reason we sing and worship and give thanks is because God commands it. And when we gather for worship, let me just counsel you this. Be careful to remember you are entering God's holy presence. Now, again, um, this sanctuary built by human hands, as, as beautiful as it is, there's nothing particularly sacred about this place. But there is something especially sacred about what we are doing. Do you understand that? In our worship service, God has commanded us to come. And we have invoked the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we worship under His authority. And so we are coming into the holy presence of God. Now let me ask you this. Do we come with blood? This, the Israelites had to come with the blood of bulls and goats. Do we come with blood? Yes, we do. You see, ceremonial law is not just thrown away. But the pictures that it represented are fulfilled. You and I come with the blood of Jesus Christ, as it were. You, you see, when we enter into corporate worship, my thoughts ought immediately to go and think, I can only be here because Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God in my behalf. Without His blood covering me and cleansing me from my sins, I have no right to ascend the mountain of the Lord. This is why the writer to the Hebrews would say, we come through the flesh of Christ. We still bring blood. God does not accept anyone into His presence apart from the blood of Christ. And so I think there's a simple rem reminder here or, or meditation. If you haven't come to Christ through repentance and faith, then your worship is not acceptable. It is only the blood of Christ that makes anything we do acceptable in God's presence. We also ought to take this to heart in the way we enter worship. Uh, the Israelites would not enter into the Lord's worship like chattering squirrels chasing each other up a tree. They come with their hearts trained for reverence and awe. Our directory of public worship gives us this counsel. Let the people upon entering the church, take their seats in a decent and reverent manner and engage in a silent prayer for a blessing upon themselves, the minister and all present, as well as upon those who are unable to attend worship. We're coming into the holy presence of the living God. And it is right then for us to set our hearts on that, remembering that the only reason that I can do this today is because Christ has paid the price for my, my sins. The psalmist gives us the motive to give thanks in verses 3 to 5. For the Lord is a great God. He is mighty, in other words. And a great King above all gods 
In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. In one sense, the psalmist is reminding us that space-wise, God owns everything. If you ascend the heights of the mountain, God owns that. If you descend into the depths of the earth, God owns that. If you swim in the sea, God owns that. Or if you farm the dry land, God owns that. But we also remember that these images had a particular theological significance for Old Testament saints and for us. We know that Christ, for instance, He ascended a mountain for a particular reason. It depicted the place of His throne. And there He was transfigured. Eden rested on the top of a mountain. The ark rested on the top of a mountain. Moses was given the law on the top of a mountain. The people in their idolatry would worship where? On the high places. Why would they do that? Because this is where you go to meet with God in their idolatry. What is God teaching us? He owns the heights of the mountains. The place of blessing and communion with God, He owns. On the other hand, what are the depths of the earth? Well, the depths of the earth is where men were drowned in the flood of judgment. The depths of the earth is where God drowned the Egyptian army. The depths of the earth is where God took Jonah in his disobedience. Do you see the picture? God possesses the place of blessing, and God possesses the place of curse. The sea and the dry land. The sea in the beginning in creation was the representation of chaos. The spirit is hovering over the face of the earth and it is tohu vabohu. It is formless and void. And over the creation week, God would gradually introduce order to that chaos, beginning with the dry land. You get the picture? God is sovereign over blessing and cursing. God is sovereign over the affliction of your life, and the days of your peace. Taken together, He is sovereign over all space and over every period of your life, so there is not a time during which thanks is not applicable. There's not a time of your life. You, you see, and this is, this is how it is so simple. If I come into worship and I begin my meditation, not with all the troubles and afflictions of my life, but if I sit here in my seat and I begin to pray and simply thank the Lord for covering me in the blood of Christ so that I might be acceptable in His presence, that helps the afflictions of life and the chaos of life and the troubles of life to fade. And suddenly, suddenly, rather than bitterness and grumbling in my heart, I begin to sense thanksgiving coming up, flowing like waters of life in my own heart. It is an act of obedience to come into the Lord's presence and give him thanks and thanks be to God that he has given us this command. Let's notice the second point here. Disobedient men, on, con on the contrary, are 
thankless. Look with me at verse 7. Um, What the psalmist writes here begins to make more sense. This is the very last phrase there of of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. What do you think the psalmist, understanding what you do now about the psalm and the command to come into the Lord's worship, What do you think he's talking about when he says today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your your heart? When you hear this command. God's worship opens here at New Covenant morning and evening with a command to come into the presence of God and to worship Him and to give Him thanks. So the psalmist says today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts. Not all men respond to God's command. And the psalmist gives us two reasons. One, some do not hear the voice of God. Now this could be a physical thing. Perhaps you live in a a physical geography where you aren't, the, the gospel is not preached and there is no minister to convene worship and call you into the presence of the Lord and you physically do not hear it. And this would have been the picture for a non-Israelite man who lives in a pagan land like Babylon or Assyria. But there's another reason that men don't hear God's voice. Notice that you don't hear with your ears primarily. You hear with your heart. You hear the voice of God with your heart. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow or obey me. A sign of God's judgment against Israel was that they had eyes but did not see, and ears but they did not hear. There are just men whose hearts do not hear the voice of God. They do not incline to obey Him. But then there are other men who are hardening or have hard hearts. God says, don't harden your heart. If you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Don't reject me. Don't deny my call. Yield. Submit. Obey. Come and be blessed. Historically, many men have hardened their hearts against God. You think about Pharaoh upon seeing the miraculous plagues. King Zedekiah hardened his heart when he didn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. The Israelite people infamously hardened their hearts against the Lord, refusing to submit to Him. In the same sense, they are referred to as a stubborn people, refusing to keep God's commandments and His statutes. Here, here the psalmist considers a specific instance Turn back over to Exodus chapter 17 with me. Don't harden your hearts like you did at Meribah and in Massa. Now bear in mind that when we read Exodus chapter 17, the people of God had just been brought out from slavery to Pharaoh. 
Just a few days prior, they had been beaten with whips, killed, their children slaughtered, and God graciously brought them out with an abundance of wealth and was going to give them a wonderful land. Notice what happens in verse 2. Let's, let's begin reading in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Notice what happens. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you, in other words, why do you put God to the test? By quarreling with me. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In a sense, a single day of rebellion incurred 40 years of wrath and loathing. Literally, God felt disgust for that generation. When God pronounced judgment on Israel in Numbers 14, verses 20 to 35, He noted they rebelled against Him ten times. They grumbled in Exodus 15. They grumbled in Exodus 16. They grumbled in Exodus chapter 17. Therefore God swore that they would not see the land that He swore to give to their fathers. How does this apply to the Christian life? You could say, well, these are the Israelites. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. And Hebrews chapter 3 is, is the moment when the writer to the Hebrews, in, in the first few chapters, he's demonstrated the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 3, verse 7, he turns a point and he begins to give us some application. Notice that he begins by explaining Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11 for the Christian. Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. 
As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now notice what he says here in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And what the writer here is saying is that their disobedience was reflected. I'm sorry, their disbelief was reflected in disobedience. particularly their refusal to submit to God's command. The people of God gladly obey him by returning thanks for all his works, but the sons of disobedience deny God his due and incur his wrath. If you hear and know the voice of God calling you, especially to gather with his people in worship, don't harden your heart. Don't say, I'll go next week. Don't harden your heart. By hardening their hearts, many Israelites wandered from God and died in the wilderness. They never enjoyed God's rest. John Payne, a minister in South Carolina, tells a story. He says, I once heard of an elderly Christian woman who had much difficulty walking due to chronic arthritis. Despite her condition, she faithfully attended morning and evening worship every Lord's Day. When asked about how she always managed to come to both services, she responded by saying, my heart gets there first, my legs follow after. Isn't this what the psalmist is demonstrating in 95? Those whose hearts are soft to the Lord love His worship. They give thanks and obey His commands. We should all pray that God would give us such a heart as this dear woman. Pray that our hearts would be so filled with thanks to God that corporate worship would be the highest, the highlight of our week, showing we are a people prepared for heaven, the place of rest. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come here this morning, we freely confess that any obedience that flows from our lives is merely a testimony to your grace at work. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We've already sung Psalm 14. Are there any righteous on the earth? No, there are none. 
All of our righteousness comes through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled the law in our behalf. And He has accepted Your wrath in our behalf so that there is none left for us. In light of that, how can we keep from singing? What locks our jaws? Humble us, O Father, as we reflect on all that You've done for us and enable us to be faithful to You in all things. We pray in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.